Welcome to Decision Insights, a podcast produced for the University of Southern Queensland's Master of Business Administration. I'm Dr. Daniel Maddock, a Digital Pedagogy and Media Specialist and part of the MBA Design Team. In this podcast, we talk to leaders from a variety of industries about how they make decisions and why decision-making is fundamental to business performance and success. These interviews were recorded via the internet, so please keep this in mind as you listen to this episode. This final episode focuses on examining different approaches for making business decisions. We are also delving into how to judge the impact of decisions and how decision-making practices might inform organisational and personal leadership learning. Nia Yari Giam, Jaganba na Gayabu, Yarawa peoples, Nia Toowoomba. This podcast is recorded on the traditional lands of the Gyabul and Yarrawa peoples in a place called Toowoomba. From Defence Force recruiting to tertiary education, Helen Nolan is a senior executive with significant experience in leadership, marketing and business development. At the top level, her decisions have affected National Defence Force marketing and university strategy. Helen knows decisions equal results in business and results can be measured. Helen is currently an executive director with the University of Southern Queensland. Helen Nolan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Helen, can you tell me a little bit about your current role with the University of Southern Queensland? Yes, sure, Daniel. Uh, My current role is executive director, strategic liaison, education community. Like many uh, universities, we love a long title, but essentially what that means is that I'm responsible for leading in the development and uh, leveraging strong relationships between the university and potential student communities. So that might mean um, school principals, uh, you know, because they're very important in the decision-making process in terms of the school leaver market for universities. And then also um, under the federal government's rural, regional and remote strategy, there's uh, regional university centres or hubs in various parts of Australia and developing relationships with those areas. So they're just two areas of my role that um, you know, involve relationships and it's um, continual follow-up with relationships. So it sounds like a really interesting job that really focuses on getting students to the university, but there are seems to me to be a lot of intricacies around how to do that. It's not just as simple as saying, look, we're a great university, come here. That's obviously one aspect, but there's also rules and regulation, government, and and so forth. Correct, Daniel. And look, one of the important things with any relationship is building trust and respect. Um, So that's not only in the commercial world, but also in, you know, our personal lives. So for me, I've always uh, had a mantra around respect. Um, I'm fortunate at the university where I work at the moment. It's one of our core values. But for me, respect is very much around I need to respect you in order for you to respect me as a leader. And once that happens, and, you know, it can take a long time. And when I say a long time, it can take years. It can happen instantaneously. But you've got to work hard at it. I'm fortunate that part of my true values is, um, you know, is I believe in education as well. And, you know, I know what a difference that can make to um, regional communities. Absolutely. Helen, Tell me a little bit about your background and how it's sort of got you to where you are today. Yeah, sure. Thank you. I guess my background, not that I intentionally did this, but has always been in service industries as, as opposed to product industries. I've been very much um, a leader for 
all of my career. I did about 20 years in the banking sector, you know, and that was when the banking sector, obviously pre-Royal Commission, which for many of our listeners, that's um, something that's front of mind at the moment. But, you know, when customer service was really coming to the fore and there's many of the principles that I learned and led my team with then, you know, are still uh, relevant today. And I see a lot of industries who could really benefit from working there. Then um, I decided to um, have a change. Um, I was at the top of my game. Um, I'd won some national awards for customer service and sales. And I thought, you know, I need to challenge myself. So that's when I ended up joining Defence Force Recruiting. So I wasn't um, in uniform. I was employed by a private company who provided uh, marketing and strategic advice and uh, administration to to the defence forces. So I started off with a role here in Toowoomba and then advanced to a state role and then I had a couple of national roles. Uh, Those roles, national level, were really instrumental in developing my strategic thinking, in developing uh, my broader thinking and really has helped me to be where I am today. And then um, in about 10 years ago, I made the decision that I really wanted to be much more Toowoomba-based, you know, rural, regional areas, you know, there's not a lot of opportunities at times, so you've got to take the opportunities when they came. So it took me about 12 months to secure a role here at the University of Southern Queensland, and so in that time, I've been in, uh, headed up the marketing portfolio, Um, I was very fortunate to be given the opportunity to um, lead the students' portfolio for a period of time. And then in the last 12 months, I've taken on the role that I have here at the moment. So how have I got to those roles? Opportunities, um, seeing opportunities, taking opportunities, and just being accountable. Helen, that's an impressive um, background and career that you've had. And I can see clearly how those, the, that background and, and the things that you've learned in those jobs have led to um, what you do now and how you help students come to the university and how you engage with um, the stakeholders, the principals and so forth to, to get that happen. That's it's all starting with that service um, industry mentality that you picked up in banking. Definitely. I was a great opportunity. And, you know, at the time when I took my first role in banking, I I have to be honest, I thought of it as a job. But then, you know, I realised as you're connecting with people and supporting and helping people make, um, you know, some significant decisions in their lives, you know that you're having an impact. And, you know, like if you believe in what you're doing and you're having an impact and you can see the outcomes, you know, it just makes so much difference to not only you as a leader but your team as well. Helen, we've come now to the part of the podcast where we discuss a significant decision from your business life. What have you brought to share with us today? Yeah, sure. I think one of the greatest challenges for leaders in any organisation is, you know, how can you make your product or service stand out or how can it be the most paroxysmal excellence in terms of what you've got there in the marketplace? And so when I worked, uh, one of the challenges that I'd like to talk about is when I worked at Defence Force Recruiting, Um, A group of us, you know, often used to have um, challenge each other around the discussion that we weren't able to recruit specialists in the area of health and engineering. Now, these people were highly sought after, still are highly sought after, they're highly specialised roles. So, um, you know, we wanted to be able to deliver these specialist skill sets and people 
to the Australian Defence Force, which was really our mission, you know, to deliver right people at the right time. This was no easy task. You know, people, um, you know, had roles in magnificent hospitals, they had roles in community centres, you know, with the engineers, many of them were making uh, huge impactful uh, decisions in terms of their corporate careers. So for us, it was how can we stand out and make a difference and connect with these people so as they make sure they're aware of the opportunities. So a group of us, you know, and oftentimes with leadership, it's not about one single individual. It was about a group of people socialising, coming together and, you know, really brainstorming ideas and getting decisions from a, a number getting inputs from a number of areas. You know, look, we're all aware of various decision-making tools and for many people who are on this podcast, you know, we've all used brainstorming, we've all used um, SWOT analysis, pestle analysis, um, you know, De Bono's thinking hats. Um, you know, we've all used those techniques and, um, and, you know, do I support the use of those techniques? Absolutely. And do I think we should use multiple techniques? Yes, because they help challenge our thinking. So we had decisions, um, tools that we used, and some of these were some of the tools that we used to come up with how we could do this. And the way we approached it was for Defence Force recruiting, each of the services, Army, Navy and Air Force, would provide personnel who it was a highly sought after role um, to come and work in Defence Force recruiting and to make a difference to potentially people's lives. Um, so we got people into these roles who are on part-time basis, who may have also worked in a clinic or a hospital or on an engineering site to come in on a part-time basis to really help with our knowledge, to help with connecting with people from these industries. It took about 18 months of many deliberations, many much socialisations, much discussion and business cases because there were to be no more defence personnel to come over Defence Force Recruiting. Um, you know, they had many other uh, work that they needed to be doing. And um, so what we had to do is business case and work it through how we could uh, move people from some of the other locations to uh, these national roles where they could fulfil the role of communicating, talking to and really earning the respect of people who are in those areas of health and engineering. So this period of time was about a 12-month period of time before we actually got that set up. You know, there were many times that we thought that was not going to happen, trying to convince people that it was going to be of value. There was no point in someone with my background really trying to convince somebody from an engineering or health background that they could add value to the Defence Force and how it could work and support um, their current career opportunities. So um, that happened over about a 12-month period of time. I was very fortunate and honoured to be asked to lead the first National Specialist Recruitment Team is what we called it. And we had people based in uh, Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane and a smaller one over in Perth. For the first 12 months, you know, like a lot of it was setting up, a lot of it was making contacts, but we could start to see small improvements in um, people joining, uh, expressing interest to join the Defence Force from those backgrounds, as well as then being appointed or in, uh, into the Defence Force. So um, I, uh, that, I did that for about two years as the national leader, was the year leader. And we saw some really strong improvements. So we had to have the impact. We had to be accountable for our decisions. And the impacts was that we 
made the right connections, we set up the right teams, and that we saw increases in people joining Defence Force. Um, you know, and that was really important. Wow. So you, you're really identifying that there is a bit of a gap there in, in the Defence Force um, personnel, that you needed these specialists. They're very difficult to get. They're, they're sort of through their career a little bit and making huge impacts, probably got very good jobs, very good income, very good positions. And you, you want those people in the Defence Force. That's a hard thing to do. And it seems to me that you're saying that you've found that what you had to do is you had to get into their world. You had to make connections and relationships with the people who worked in those industries to figure out who those people were and how to get those people into the Defence Force world. Daniel, that's correct. And oftentimes the people, particularly in the health and engineering fields, they were looking for some sort of different challenges and opportunities. And, um, you know, aside from their roles, example, in hospitals or clinics, you know, getting out there in the bush, um, in the sea, in the air, um, opportunities that they could see to make a difference to the lives of people, not only in Australia, but also internationally. So was this a strategic approach that you had by looking at something? Did, did you expect that it would take, you know, 18 months to do this and, and, and plan it out accordingly? Uh, yes, I did. And it was a real change of thinking. So, you know, in other organisations, perhaps where there's no, not as many stakeholders, it could have been perhaps done in a shorter period of time. But we needed to make sure that all the stakeholders believed in what we were doing, could see the potential value in what we were doing. And, you know, once again, it's about earning respect from people, your colleagues and stakeholders, that you've got a good grasp of what the problem is here. And, you know, these are the process that we've gone through in order to make a decision of where we feel like that we need to go to and what opportunities these stakeholders would have to review, you know, what we've made, uh, the decisions we've made to do. There was a lot of brainstorming you said at the beginning there for that decision-making process. Was there a period at the beginning where you really needed to spend some months to just even figure out what direction you needed to go in? Yeah, I think um, it's important for all of us to realise strategy just doesn't happen overnight. You know, probably that's a tactic, not a strategy. And, you know, the strategy, you know, was to recruit the right people at the right time. But there were times when there were specialist roles that were very hard to recruit for. The strategy we had to take was to very much think about our, do our thinking in a different way, um, connect with people in a different way, and have a consistent message about the value that these people could provide to defence and to um, Australia and how it could complement their current careers. Do you see that impact now in the ADF, that these people are now working for them? Yeah, and also there's a lot more awareness of what opportunities there are for these people in the Defence Force, whether it be part-time or full-time. Working in the Australian Defence Force is, you know, a wonderful thing to do, and but it's for the right people as well. So that's why they have a rigorous process. And um, particularly for the professionals in the health and the engineering sector, it's so, so important that um, they have an understanding of what that looks like. What did you learn from that whole 18-month period of, of making these decisions and working to, work, to get the people in the ADF? Um, I think... Um, making sure you have the right stakeholders engaged right from the start in terms of, you know, in an informal way as well as then a formal way. Um, you know, pay 
uh, Daniel, I'd like to catch up with you for a coffee. I just got this idea in my head and I just want to talk it through to you. That type of approach, even before you start doing a business case or a business plan, um, I found that that was really important in terms of building the respect and trust and leading towards that decision-making process. I think um, some of the challenges that um, you know, we found along the way, there seemed to be a, long, a lot of time and effort put into resources, you know, the financial implications. And, you know, every organisation has that. Defence Force has a significant budget, and so it should. But it, many organisations don't. So, you know, within the resources of your own organisation, what can you do? And think about things differently, because I know one of the challenges was the stakeholders, in this case, all felt that we were asking for more money. We weren't, but we had to get that message across and that took some time. So you learn um, different ways of approaching things. So it comes back to the humble conversation in, in the end that beginning with a coffee and a chat is perhaps the best way to start anything. Look, you know, that informal discussion to think that you don't think that I'm absolutely crazy, that I'm heading this in the right direction, have the courage of your conviction, and then to be able to articulate well, whether it be in those social conversations or when you come to a more formal business case, the impacts it's going to have, how you're going to review it, yeah, understand how nimble your organisation is. If this doesn't work after X period of time, you know, what can we do to change it? Helen, we've uh, come to the part of the discussion now where we're going to look at specifically what the students are learning this week in the final week of our learning. And what we're looking at, what we're focusing on this week is how to judge the impact or consequences of decisions and how decision-making practices can be used for organisational and personal leadership learning. Thinking now about your current role at USQ, does your organisation, does USQ adopt specific approaches or, or processes for decision making? They certainly do. And, and I think need to be careful about uh, what area we're looking at, because as we would appreciate, there are expectations under the higher education standards framework for what universities deliver for as a university and what they deliver for as a student. So many of the people who are on this podcast, I'm sure have got you know, regulatory authorities who are in their background or very much in front of them. So how that really helps to support and inform and guide your decision-making is really, really important. We mentioned the banking sector, there's certainly, and um, Australian Defence Force, there's certainly uh, regulations there. So that's certainly something that informs and supports decision-making. Of course, then we need to think about um, the strategy of the organisation. Organisations, I guess, have had to you know, think differently about their strategy in um, a pandemic-type um, world that we're in. But, you know, that's good. That really encourages organisations to be agile, but still holding true to their strategy. A strategic document should not be just something that's produced and, and left on the shelf. It should also be a living document that we can work through and um, tick off and adjust um, as we come through. I think universities are very strong in um, making decisions by committees um, and we can all sit there and roll our eyes. Um, there are many organisations who are like that, but we just need to make sure that those who are chairing those committees, those who are uh, having input in those committees, really make sure that those committees, you've done your homework beforehand and you contribute valuably to the meeting. Um, we all don't need to go to endless meetings that really have no outputs or um, impacts on an environment, uh, on your organisation. Helen, when it comes to those 
committees, the frameworks that we come up with for making decisions, uh, the, the processes that we go through, how does that begin? How do we get to a place and what guides those processes or the creation of those processes? Yeah, many organisations will have, you know, a, a process prior to a committee. There's a need for a committee. You know, the committees might be short-term, they might be long-term. Some organisations, you know, you might have an audit and risk committee, which is very much in terms of the regulations for organisations um, and also good governance for organisations. But, you know, it might be simple as a terms of reference, you know, what this meeting's for, you know, how often they will meet, um, you know, what's the time frame of this committee? You know, is it a six-month arrangement? Is it an ongoing arrangement? Or is there um, something else? And who should be involved in the meetings? You know, I'm a, quite a big believer in the smaller the group, the better, but you've got to make sure that, you know, those people who are on that committee are talking and communicating. But once again, it goes back to that consistent messaging the people in your team or your organisation respecting you, that you will communicate both in and out of that committee meeting as appropriate in terms of confidentiality. As you mentioned before, there are different committees and, and usually lots of committees, especially at organisations like universities, making different decisions. How do we decide who is on what committee, how big a committee should be and what different types of decisions get administered to those committees? Yeah, sure. I think, Daniel, one of the things is with the terms of reference, you know, it'll make the decisions. Having that terms of reference, is this group a decision-making group or is it just a purely a reference group or an ideas-gathering group? If it's a decision-making group, it should have the powers from a CEO or a board in terms of what it can do, and that will depend on the importance of the group and perhaps the impact it might have on the strategy or the risk appetite for an organisation. You know, those areas of strategy, audit and risk, financial arrangements, they all have a big impact on the development of decision-making, the committee structures and the outputs. And all organisations will be different in how that happens in terms of their governance arrangements. Do the approaches um, or the processes used at USQ by you and, and, and also by the organisation generally, do they always work or do you have to play with them, as it were, to alter them, to help them work? And, you know, I think any organisation should review their terms of reference for a committee at least annually. Do they always work? No, they don't. And there can be many reasons for that. Timing wasn't right. Maybe we don't have the right group of people on it or the problem that was associated with why this committee was set up. Maybe it hasn't been clearly articulated and maybe there's, you know, need to go back to the drawing board. What are we trying to solve here? Why do we need this group of people? We just don't need a group of people sitting around a table and it's going around in circles. There's got to be a reason for it. You know, and meeting people, as we've all found over the last year, uh, Zoom and other mediums like that, teams, for example, have all become so important. So, you know, ensuring that we get our consistency of message across and also to ensure that, you know, there are still some verbal and non-verbal cues with people. How do you use decision-making practices to foster personal leadership and organisational learning? Um, I think when, example, things don't work, that can really test your um, personal leadership and the approach you make um, because sometimes that teaches you patience, resilience, um, determination to succeed. Um, okay, that didn't work going in, down path A. I need to go path B or C. How can that happen 
um, so that we can get this group back on track. It does take every bit of people's leadership um, communication to be able to do that. Because at the end of the day, from any decision-making or committee or group, we want impacts or outputs or otherwise, you know, that starts, leads people to question my leadership style. It leads people to question why we're doing something like this. You've got to earn that respect. And um, sometimes the decision-making can lead to challenges in that area. Do you often in a committee reflect on that then at the end, come back and think, you know, did we achieve the goal that we were set out to do? Often, yes. Um, do I, you, I think every one of us will walk away from a meeting, no matter how formal or informal it is, and think, well, how did that all happen today? Was that a successful meeting or was that not? Are we going forward or are we just stationary? How could have I made a difference to that? And I think there are a lot of example board meetings, example executive meetings where there is feedback asked for at the end. Sometimes that can be challenging to provide and sometimes it might be easier for people to do in a one-on-one situation. But don't underestimate, you know, you as a leader, the value of getting feedback. Helen, I thought that that part of the meeting went well, but this part went off track. You know, perhaps we need to think about how we we um, manage that in the future. And all meetings go off track, let's be honest, but we need to bring them back to what's the core purpose of what are we here to decide today and what's our committee for? So those learnings then, that feedback can influence learning and then influence processes and how decisions are made in the future. Correct, yeah. Um, there's always learnings to happen, uh, Daniel, from whatever you do in terms of committees, in terms of um, strategy, in terms of and how you deliver that and the impacts, you know. Could we have had, you know, instead of a, a negative impact, could we have we've got just 1%? Don't aim for 10% all the time or 100%. You know, what's that 1% impact you can have? And, you know, incremental changes can really lead to some amazing outcomes and also help with the respect and trust issue. Helen, is there one piece of advice that you might give to our MBA students to close? Uh, Yeah, if I can be so indulgent as to have two pieces of advice, (laughs) continue to earn respect. That takes time, effort and really strong, positive leadership. And the other part is have clear, consistent messaging with impact. Now, that's all very well to say, but sometimes if you haven't thought about what the impact you want, your messaging won't be as clear and concise as you would like it to be or it needs to be. Helen, you've uh, clearly earned my respect on this show and definitely had an impact. Helen Nolan, thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Daniel, and I wish all the MBA students the very best. Information about our guests can always be found in the podcast show notes in your podcast app or on the course site. This has been a University of Southern Queensland podcast produced by the Office for the Advancement of Learning and Teaching.